Tianakwe. My name is Will Appleby, and this is Animal Matters. On today's show, wild animals are doing it tough in cages, both in New Zealand and abroad, and on Netflix it seems. We speak to Dr. Nick Taylor about animal-human relationships, oppression, violence, and how these intertwine and play a role in our society. And Taranaki locals are fed up with live export, and they're taking aim at the Taranaki Regional Council. Animal Matters is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation. We're here to open up for discussion the key issues facing animals. We'll go beyond the news cycle and dive into some of the complexities that surrounds the exploitation of animals. If you would like to support the show, you can become a patron by heading to patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Pledges start at $5 a month. Patrons can also unlock bonus content like the monthly bonus episode. Before I get stuck into the regular Animal Matters content, I want to talk about the Netflix series that's taken the world by storm. Tiger King has been labelled the most popular documentary series of all time by some commentators, and at first I refused to watch it. I had heard enough about the series to know that the series subjects are terrible people who imprison exotic animals, namely tigers and other big cats. But curiosity got the better of me. So last week I watched it. Putting aside the obvious examples of animal cruelty, this series is undoubtedly entertaining. It really is no surprise that it has become such a phenomena. The stories of these people that all intertwine, the scandals, the feuds, if it were fiction, it would give Game of Thrones a run for its money. But this is based on stories from real people. I say based on because... There's plenty of narratives that are speculative at best in this show, and we can't assume that the filmmakers are completely without bias. It's also based on stories from real animals, who frankly don't get nearly enough attention. It's on the shoulders of these big cats and other exotic animals that this show rests on. Their suffering is occasionally acknowledged, but their suffering barely gets a fraction of the screen time, as the so-called zookeepers do. There's one particular heartbreaking scene where baby tiger cubs were torn away from their mother moments after being born. And the titular character is sentenced to prison for numerous crimes, which include illegally killing healthy tigers. But that's where any analysis of the cruelty inflicted upon these animals ends. The rest of the series is committed to the lives and feuds between the show's main subjects, being the zookeepers. I'm not going to get into any of the claims made about these characters. Whether or not Carol Baskin played a role in her husband's disappearance, or whether Joe Exotic should have been imprisoned for his involvement in a murder-for-hire plot, I don't care. The internet can debate those topics ad nauseum. What I will say is there are no heroes in this show. Even the show's single animal activist is problematic. Some of these people have become overnight celebrities now, and it begs the question, what about the tigers? The show correctly states that there are more tigers in captivity in America than there are tigers in the wild. It's their story I want to know about, and it's a story that's been lost in the noise. It's a story that's been lost amongst demands from millions of fans to release Joe Exotic from prison, or charge Carol Baskin for the disappearance of her husband. It's a story that's been lost in the business feuds between Jeff and his associates. 
The zoo environments can have a significant impact on the health and well-being of animals in captivity. Captive animals can suffer from zoocosis. This is caused by extreme physical and mental frustration, which leads to abnormal behaviour, such as pacing, rocking and self-mutilation. You can even see some of these symptoms in the show, but if you blink, you'll miss it. So-called zookeepers say they're conservationists. By keeping and breeding endangered exotic species in captivity, they claim they're saving them from extinction. In reality though, the biggest threat to wildlife is habitat destruction caused by human activity. We're the problem. Keeping animals in captivity isn't going to solve that problem. Changing our behaviour and how we treat the planet and animals is going to solve that problem. Keeping and breeding animals in captivity is a misguided waste of resources. Better spent on protecting the habitats of those animals. Habitats we're doing a pretty good job of destroying right now. Further to that, when we keep animals in captivity, we make them wholly dependent on humans. So what happens when humans aren't dependable? This definitely plays out in the show. One example is when Joe can barely afford the tiger's food bills. But it happens in real life as well. Right now in New Zealand, many of our zoos are under pressure during the COVID-19 lockdown. Their income from entry fees have disappeared and they're struggling to feed their animals. Christchurch's Orana Park has started fundraising to feed the 400 animals it has in captivity. This includes lions, tigers, rhinos and New Zealand's only gorillas. Obviously this lockdown is something that none of us could have planned for. But if these zoos are so reliant on entry fees that after a month of lockdown they're running out of cash, how prepared are they to feed these animals during a recession or some other crisis? So, Tiger King. Should you watch it? Like I said, it's undoubtedly entertaining. It's very well put together. You can't help but watch the next episode after finishing the previous. It's like watching a train crash in slow motion. But if you care about animals, then be prepared to be disappointed. I didn't feel great after watching it. And in my opinion, I don't think the show will do much to help those animals kept in captivity. I think it's just made some celebrities out of some truly awful people. And you're not missing out if you choose to skip it. Moving along. I didn't mean to talk that much about Tiger King, but perhaps I needed to get it off my chest. If there's a topic that you'd like me to discuss on the show, or there's someone in mind you think would be good for an interview, feel free to send us an email. You can write to me at animalmatters@safe.org.nz. Now, one industry that seems to be continuing along as normal as if nothing has happened is the live animal export trade. Two ships have arrived in New Zealand during lockdown, one at Napier and another at Port Taranaki. Port Taranaki began facilitating live animal exports in January, and their most recent shipment a couple of weeks ago is the third ship to arrive at that port. The locals are not happy. At all. SAFE organised a protest at Port Taranaki when Yangtze Fortune arrived in January. It was collecting 3,800 cars for export to China. I was at that protest, and I have to say the public response was incredible. People came out in droves to protest which continued long after we left. It was all the local media were talking about for a number of days. A second shipment left Port Taranaki in March, taking 3,300 cars again to China. This time locals organised their own protest, in terrible rain might I add. And now in the last fortnight, a third shipment, 
taking 4,450 cows to China. These cows are being exported for breeding purposes to expand and strengthen China's dairy industry. The export of live animals for slaughter is illegal, but these breeding cattle will ultimately be slaughtered, potentially by methods that would be far too cruel to be legal in New Zealand. That's because China has lower animal welfare, transport and slaughter standards. By exporting animals, we undermine our own laws. New Zealand has no control over their fate once they arrive in their country of destination. What we do have control over is whether or not we export them. Taranaki locals have had enough, and they're taking aim at the Taranaki Regional Council. That's because they own the port. Animal activists based in Taranaki have launched a petition requesting the council as sole shareholder to direct the port to cease the export of live farmed animals. The Taranaki Regional Council Chief Executive Bill Chamberlain hit back, saying that the activists got it wrong. He says the port's board of directors are independent and the regulation of live exports is up to the government. Basically, it's not the council's problem, he says. Now, sure, the government sets the rules for live export. But other than that, Mr Chamberlain isn't strictly correct. The Taranaki Regional Council actually appoints two of its councillors to sit on Port Taranaki's board of directors. Councillor David McLeod, who was chair of the board, and Councillor Charlotte Littlewood have both been appointed to the board of directors. Further to that, the council issues a statement of corporate intent to the port. This statement outlines what the council expects from the business and can specify activities the port must refrain from. So the port's board of directors is certainly not independent from the regional council. And the council absolutely has the power to direct the port to stop facilitating live exports. The petition currently has 7,000 signatures. It is clear that exporting Taranaki cows goes against the wishes of Taranaki residents. Taranaki's regional councillors are elected representatives of the community. They have a duty and a mandate to act on the wishes of its constituents. And in this case, they absolutely have the power to stop the brutal trade of live animals at their port. Joining us on the show today, we have Dr. Nick Taylor. Nick is an internationally recognised sociologist who researches human relationships with other species. She is currently Associate Professor in the Department of Human Services and Social Work at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Her research focuses on mechanisms of power and marginalisation expressed through human relationships with other species and is informed by intersectional feminism. Nick currently teaches topics that focuses on human-animal violence, and particularly domestic violence and animal abuse. She's published over 70 articles, books, and chapters, and her most recent book, co-authored by Heather Fraser, was published last year, called Companion Animals and Domestic Violence, Rescuing You, Rescuing Me. Dr. Nick Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. No problem at all. I'm glad to have you here. Just to set things off, quite broad question as well. What led you into your work in the human-animal relationship field? Yeah, good question. Um, I've been doing this now for, well, 20 years or so. I got involved in this through a number of different avenues, really. Um, The first, I guess, was through doing some volunteer work at a local animal shelter, working with the dogs there and having my eyes open to 
just how poorly we treat other animals, even those animals that we claim that we love and that are part of our families. And at the same time, I met animal rights activists and advocates who were also working there, who, who introduced me to a whole new way of thinking about the world. And then I moved to university and my first year of university was in a very upper class university in the British system. And I met people who went fox hunting and I kind of became aware of the links between class oppression and animal oppression through being forced to interact with them. And then finally, I was exposed to both Marxism and feminism as an undergraduate. And along with the kind of volunteer work that I was doing that was showing me some of the links between domestic violence and animal abuse, all of these things kind of collided together for me. And they became almost like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, and I could put the pieces together and I could see patterns. And then when I was offered the opportunity to do a, a PhD, it was those patterns that I really wanted to concentrate on. And that kind of started my research in this area of human animal abuse. It's, a, it's interesting you mentioned starting to work with, starting to be exposed to what we do to companion animals and uh, or being interested. Obviously, you have a love for animals, so you're interest, interested in, in helping uh, companion animals. And I've actually had similar conversations with a lot of people where they may be looking for something more fulfilling in life, a new project or a new um, somewhere they can volunteer or even a new vocation. And I've spoken to people who have considered things like going to be a vet nurse, which seems like an obvious choice for animal lovers um, for a career path. But when they actually look into it and they start learning about you know, the things that they would need to do to animals, especially in animals on farms, they quite quickly get put off and they start realising, oh, there's actually a lot more going on here in terms of our relationships with animals. It's not quite so as as cut and dry as, I love animals, so I'll become a vet nurse. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, actually, because when I it was late, mid to late teens that I first started doing the volunteer work, and my aim then was to go to university to be a vet, but I wanted to be a shelter vet, so... I wanted to have the qualifications so that I could work in animal shelters. But through being exposed to what people do um, through working with animals in animal shelters and, and getting an understanding of what it is that vets do, even in animal shelters where there are high euthanasia rates, it, it became clear that, you know, that that was not going to fulfill the itch that I had to do some work where I felt like I could help other creatures. And just going a little bit further into what you said in the latter part about how you got interested in feminism and Marxism, when you talk about those fields colliding and a big part of Marxism is class struggle, do you, do you think there's parallels with that and and the oppression of animals? Yeah, I do, absolutely. I mean, I take an intersectional approach these days, you know, I... I mean, I, I do think that class politics play a part, but I also think that gender does, ability does, you know, kind of indigeneity, um, all that kind of stuff. It collides around um, around the mechanisms that we use to marginalise those groups of individuals that we don't think matter. And I think animals are in there too. Um, and I think that one of the things that's, I think as we're starting to get better at this intersectional analysis, one of the things that we're really overlooking is the class politics. Or are the class politics? I mean, I read a lot of stuff from the left that is really critical of the, you know, the way we're treating the environment, or even just around the pandemic and the need to change and the need to acknowledge our frontline care workers who tend to be working class. 
but there's no connection or very few people are making those connections with class politics. So I think we can do better when it comes to intersectionality. I think we can start pulling in some of these arguments around class politics. And it might be around, as you say, you know, um, kind of seeing animals as an underclass and treating them the same way. But I also think Marxism's got a whole heap to offer us in terms of um, the, the critique of the commodification of other animals and how that commodification allows us to utterly normalise and accept their everyday abuses. So I do think, you know, we need to pull these intellectual strands together a bit better. And that leads quite nicely into my next point, which is, generally speaking, our society considers those who abuse animals as more likely to commit violence towards other humans. But when people normally think about animal abuse, they're thinking about abuse to companion animals like cats and dogs. But the, the reality is, violence towards animals is far more pervasive. It happens on farms, it happens on research facilities, and for the purposes of conservation. So... In what way do these examples of violence towards animals play a role in our society? I think, I mean, I don't know about you, but I find it infuriating that we obsess about individuals who are cruel to other animals. I mean, of course, we should address this, right? We, we have to address that. But I think when we individualise, we pathologise. And so we look at, you know, the bad person doing the bad thing to the, to the individual creature. And that means that we remove from this any analysis of the structures and the institutional support that we have generally in our society for the abuse of nearly all animals that that are unfortunate enough to come into contact with humans. Um, And I think that's quite deliberate, to be honest. I think I think that's safe. You know, I think if we if we can tell ourselves that it's only bad people who are doing bad things on the odd occasion, we feel better about humanity. And furthermore, we don't have to look at our own practices and our own complicity in this, do we? You know, we we get to the point where we can just point at that person over there who's doing that bad thing that we don't condone. So I think the individualization and the pathologization of individuals who do, it serves a really neat purpose for people who don't want to look at the way that the kind of violences that you just talked about, you know, so through medical testing, through conservation, through meat eating, all that kind of stuff, that stuff is deeply embedded in our systems and when it's embedded it's normalized so we don't question it well I mean obviously you and I do and others of our ilk do but very few people question it so I think you know I think I've got away from your question now but I think that the two of those the individualization and the structural um, normalization of it I think they work hand in hand to force us to look away from um, our own complicity and the institutions that support this what do you think? Well, I guess a a classic example that might demonstrate this is a a very hardline approach that some people use in communicating the exploitation of of animals is to say, if you eat animals, you don't love them, right? So if you really love animals, then you you wouldn't eat them. Now, I don't particularly think that's a, a message that would be successful, but that's another discussion. But to say something like that, people often recoil because... Of course I love animals. I would never do harm to other animals. And just because I eat meat, it doesn't mean I don't love animals. So I guess because it's so deeply embedded in our society that consuming animals and using animals for research purposes is totally normal. So that when any question is raised, like, well, is that really the way you should treat animals if you love them? People feel uncomfortable and and they recoil. Yeah, I mean, 
and I'm not sure it's normal, but it's normalised. You know, I don't know that it's normal for one species to oppress another in the way that we do. I hope it's not normal or else there's no hope for us, is there really? Um, but it's normalised through a load of different manoeuvres, you know, linguistic manoeuvres where we refer to them as it or where we refer to them as group categories of animals rather than individuals. There's all those kind of things happening that normalise the way that we treat some animals. And I actually think that for most people who don't give these issues a lot of thought, you can hold those two seemingly contradictory um, feelings of loving animals but eating them. I think a lot of people have no problem holding those two together because the animals that we love, through those various manoeuvres, we make them different than the animals that we eat. And it's that difference that, for me as a sociologist, you know, how do we do that? And once we understand how we do it and how that's embedded in our structures, then we can start to think about, well, okay, how do we tear that down? Um, so I don't think it's that contradictory. I mean, I think it's a good message. Don't get me wrong. I'm not critiquing your approach here. I think it gets people thinking. But I, I don't know. I talk to a lot of people who, you know, they do love their dog. They absolutely do. They would do anything for their dog or their cat, but they have no problem going home and eating a burger. Um, and it's about getting people to see the inconsistencies and to make those connections, I think. So th- thinking about a connection between violence towards animals and violence towards other human beings, and we know that violence towards animals is pervasive in our society, does that have an impact on us as a society that, for example, in a, in a practical sense, does someone who might work in a slaughterhouse and the things that they have to do on a daily basis, does that affect their behaviours outside of the slaughterhouse any i guess more broadly does the way that we treat animals more broadly does that play out in other ways in our society that we may not expect yeah i think so i mean i think there's the individual level you know slaughterhouse workers as an example um i mean you know it it doesn't just thinking about what they're doing on a day-to-day basis you start to realize that it must be incredibly damaging to them psychologically as well as physically um And, you know, we know from the few pieces of research that are out there that towns where slaughterhouses are the main source of income are likely to have higher crime rates, higher domestic violence rates. Um, So it clearly kind of pushes out into the community from the individual. So I think there's that level. But I also think there's a broader level where, um, you know, we live in a world where violence to animals actually is the foundation of our society it's the bedrock of it you know all of our practices are predicated on violence to other creatures and that in itself requires a particular mindset and that mindset is one that allows us to push any group that we consider to be different or to be other to us to to the side and to perpetrate all kinds of atrocities on them so you know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the normalisation of violence to animals in our society is, is it uses the same mechanisms, it creates and it maintains the kind of things like violence and ignorance towards refugees or racism or sexism. You know, I think all of these things are connected at such, at such a high order level, if you like, of the way that we think about things. And again, it comes back to this normalisation. All of this is so utterly normalised that we don't see it. We're, we're completely blind to it. And this, of course, is the intersectional stuff, isn't it? It's why I don't think we can have single-issue campaigns. I think if we're going to try and get rid of one form of oppression, because the mechanisms of oppression are the same across groups, 
we've got to get rid of all forms of oppression. So that, that kind of leads me on to my question about about critical feminism and how these issues intersect. And obviously your work, your work is informed by critical feminism. So how does how does feminism and animal-human relationships intersect? And how can it help us to better understand oppression in our society? I think it intersects in so many different ways. And I don't think it's just one form of feminism. You know, I mean, I borrow from lots of different theories in my work. Um, and so, for instance, you know, I think what we can take is um, from radical feminism, we can take um, a focus on structures, you know, how abuse is normalised in the structures in our societies, from ecofeminism, for example, we can look at kind of interlinked oppressions, you know, the way that oppression of nature, oppression of women, oppression of other animals, the way that they, um, the way that it, 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 it's used ideologically or the way that it's maintained ideologically. I think the socialist feminism also, we can borrow parts of that where we can, as I mentioned earlier, you know, look at how um, animals are commodified in the capitalist environment. So I think feminism's got a lot to offer us in terms of theoretically understanding those intersections. But I also think what feminism or some forms of feminism offers, which is really strong and other theories don't often, um, is the belief that it's not just about theory. You know, there's a critical animal studies saying where theories for theory's sake, and we don't want to engage in that. What we want to do is use theory to better understand what's happening in society so that we can get out there and take action so it's this notion of praxis you know you're not a disembodied observer I'm not a disembodied theorist I'm an active vegan feminist who's trying to counter all of these ideas in my daily life so I think feminism offers us that focus on the practical as well so you know it's not I mean there's more than feminism here in, in order to understand this but I think feminism is a great starting point because it offers us both a theoretical way of thinking about this, but it also points to the need to take action and to do practical activities that counter um, the kind of things that we're identifying through our theory. You mentioned praxis, and praxis has historically been a big part of Marxist movements and anarchist movements. What are your thoughts around how do those theories intersect with veganism? An obvious example of our praxis would be the fact that we don't eat animals, but what else can we draw from those fields? I think there's a lot there. I mean, like I said, you know, the earlier when we started talking and particularly around kind of things like hunting, we need to look at the class politics of this. We need to look at the class politics of veganism as well. You know, in the mainstream media, it's presented as a very white middle class affair. And of course, we know on the ground that that's not the case. But we need to start kind of deconstructing these ideas and Marxism comes in handy there. Um, I also think, though, that, you know, the, the Marxist notion of, of a military industrial complex. So we've borrowed from that to think about the animal industrial complex, um, which lets us look at the way um, because of the economic benefits. A lot of these kind of practices where we do normalize animal abuse are either hidden um, or normalised or condoned. Um, it allows us to kind of offer an analysis of the institutionalization of the commodification of animals um, and follow the money, really. You know, I mean, if you look at like the meat industry, it's so um, vertically and horizontally integrated, you know, it, it, that, that we, we, there's no other way to analyse that other than to think about how it fits into the economy and therefore how these kind of ideological state apparatuses, to use a Marxist term, 
you know, so how our kind of cultural and political institutions kick in to normalize that because it is for the benefit of the economy. So I think, I think Marxism's, you know, aligned with feminism. I think these critical um, theories have got an awful lot to offer us. My main complaint about Marxism is that it's incredibly humanist and it remains that way, apart from a few very good outliers who are trying to bring species into these left-wing politics. Um, and we need to tackle that. You know, I, I read a great piece the other day around um, a critique from the left arguing that um, the Marxist commodification of the environment needs to be addressed post-pandemic if we're ever going to stop the, the pandemic. And it was forcing us to think about frontline workers and how they're all working class. But there was no analysis there of the gendered nature. And the one massive hole that you couldn't ignore was, you know, animals weren't mentioned. How can we have any discussion of the pandemic without talking about our exploitation of the natural world and of animals? And yet this article managed it. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot there from Marxism, anarchism, from some strands of feminism. But I also think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of bringing them together. Yeah, I think you made a really good point there that um, especially Marxism historically has been very, very humanist. And I mean, even the, the slogan, Workers of the World Unite, you know, it's an empowering sort of slogan, but it ignores everything else. That's not the only example. I mean, capitalism is just as responsible for that as well. So talking about our economy, and it's deeply intertwined with the exploitation of animals, and we've essentially marginalised animals into these positions... What kind of systemic power structures are, are in play here? You've talked a little bit about class, um, but what other sort of power structures might be in play here and and how do we deconstruct them, so to speak? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because they are so interlinked. So it feels huge. You know, it feels, it just feels massive. I mean, we can pull out most of the kind of old players in this, you know, classes there, genders there, ethnicities there, ableism's there, Um and we can start pointing to the need for um, animal rights activists to be intersectional in our analysis um, and to understand how things are configured within capitalism so that we can start to we can start to pull them apart. But it does feel huge. And one of the things that I think that we're struggling with um, in, as a society and also as animal rights activists is that we've moved away from kind of structural politics to identity politics. And I think identity politics matter, don't get me wrong. And I do think we've got consumer power, you know? So if we have more vegans who are eating more vegan food, then we've got some consumer power, some bargaining power there in order to kind of start closing down meat works or whatever we may be aiming for. But at the same time, a sole focus on, on identity politics means that we don't start that structural analysis and it, to me that means that we end up just tinkering around the edges um, rather than actually changing the huge things that need to be changed if we are actually going to eradicate animal oppression and you know those I mean they are so huge that's, that's the issue isn't it it's hard to wrap your head around it it's not just getting everybody to be vegan I mean that would be great don't get me wrong but if we're vegan for anthropocentric reasons, for our health or for the climate or, you know, because we want to preserve the world that we live in, then what we're not doing is actually changing our dominionistic attitudes towards other animals. And it's those attitudes of dominion that, to me, 
sit at the heart of our society and allow violence to all these different groups. So without them, all we're ever doing really is working at the band-aid level rather than working at the structural problem. I think you made a, raised an interesting point there that we have consumer power in the sense that, and it makes sense, if you stop buying and stop eating animal products and start buying vegan options, then business will follow the money, so on and so forth. X amount of time down the track, animal exporting industries are over and have been replaced by um, a plant-based alternative. In theory, that makes sense and in, in theory should work. But we've still got the same capitalist power structures in play and theoretically we're just replacing animal exploiting industries with carbon copies of those industries that are making different products. Yeah, that's, that's right. And I think, you know, I don't, I mean, I'm not saying for one minute that animal rights advocates should not be advocating for veganism. We absolutely should. And we should be there in those identity politics circles. But we should also be going beyond them, is, is my point. You know, we, if we make the world vegan, that's not necessarily going to stop racism. It's not necessarily going to stop us treating refugees dreadfully. It's not necessarily going to stop domestic violence. Um, you know, the only thing that's going to stop those is upending our worldview that says that those that sit at the top of the hierarchy are better than those that are lower down on the hierarchy. Um, and while there are some aspects of veganism that tackle that, if we leave it solely at the point of, of identity politics, they're not going to get near that. And it, it might help billions of animals who are no longer slaughtered, but it wouldn't, for example, help animals who are tested on on a daily basis because we wouldn't be necessarily getting near that if we're only advocating for a plant-based diet so i think it's a it's a key it's really clear that we need some kind of vegan advocacy and we absolutely should be sticking to that as animal rights advocates but it's only one of the things that we should be sticking to to make point it avoids animals in entertainment you've mentioned animals in research facilities animals considered pests in conservation um, I mean, destruction of animal habitats, if anything, that's that could well increase. The plant-based sort of revolution and plant-based meats has been fantastic, but um, I do worry what some of those products have on, will have on the environment and, um, and habitat destruction. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, and I think that the issues that I just raised before, I think a lot of vegans are well aware. I think a lot of vegans... Um, who identify as vegans um, are well aware of these intersections and, and practice intersectional politics themselves. But the problem is that we're not seeing necessarily a vegan revolution at the moment. We're seeing a plant-based revolution. You know, and you just need to look at the terms, right? We, a lot of people use the term um, plant-based to remove the idea of a vegan lifestyle from plant-based eating. So it takes the politics out of it. And again, don't get me wrong, yes, let's push for plant-based because fewer animals being killed and eaten, the better. But it depoliticizes it. And what we need to do is keep this notion of veganism as broader than just our food choices, as acknowledging these intersectional politics. That's the stuff we need to keep alive, I think. So moving a little bit towards domestic violence, and I want to talk about your book, Companion Animals and Domestic Violence, Rescuing You, Rescuing Me, which discusses human-animal relationships in the context of domestic violence. What are the sort of learnings that we should take away from your research on this topic? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, I, I mean, I think the first thing is that when we, and I made this point earlier, but when we do think about 
links between violence to humans and violence to animals, we get stuck in the, the rut of thinking about it as individualized and, and we shouldn't, you know? It works along, violence to animals works along the same kind of continuum as violence to women. Um, and, and, and both of these are normalized. And I'm using gender terms here because the research that we did for the book was with um, heterosexual women who were in violent relationships. I have done work with LGBTQ plus people around domestic violence, but the book was actually based on research with women. Um, and I think, you know, that the, the same kind of patterns are there, the way we objectify women, the way we objectify animals, the way we see them as for consumption, the way we have the male gaze that kind of objectifies them and, and marginalizes them. All of these things are there. So that was kind of the theoretical terrain of the book. But the key argument that, that we wanted to make um, was actually that when we think about violence to animals and violence to humans and particularly around domestic violence, the vast majority of scholarship has looked at animals as a, as a red flag, as a way of giving us an indication that there's something wrong with humans. And one of the things that Heather and I got really irritated with while we were doing this research was that nowhere in that framing is there room to see that the animals are victims in and of themselves. So, so there, there's violence done to these animals usually occurs side by side with the violence that's done to the humans that live with them. But it doesn't always, you know, these animals are themselves victims of domestic violence. They're not just red flags for us to see um, problems or violence that's being done to humans. So that was probably our main takeaway. And then we had a secondary one that came as a real shock. And um, we didn't, it was a finding that emerged while we were doing the field work that we didn't expect to find. And it was that, you know, nine times out of ten, I think that domestic violence, human domestic violence victims should be um, kept, should be allowed to stay with the, the animals who are domestic violence victims. You know, they make a family unit, they have a bond, they should be able to stay together as they're recovering. But that's not always the case. That if we start to look at this with, with the animals in the centre of the picture instead of humans in the centre of the picture, what we saw were a couple of cases where the humans were just expecting too much from the animals. You know, they wanted them to be their therapists, to be their helpers. They were waking them up at all hours, crying on, uh, on their shoulders. And we saw animals acting um, in ways that suggested that they had their own trauma. So it's two things, really. The first is animals can be victims in and of themselves. And the second is, that if we start to center animals in these dialogues, we might actually come up with very different concerns than if we center humans. That's incredible. I'm just, I mean, it, it makes sense, doesn't it, that animals would be victims of, of domestic violence just as much as humans. But I'd never considered the thought that those animals become, as you say, almost a therapist. They're like relied upon. So when you say that they're normally considered a red flag, so is that examples where an animal might be brought into a vet or to the police that's showing symptoms of some kind of abuse. Is that kind of what you mean by a red flag where someone might look at that and go, okay, is there something else going on at home? Is this an example of domestic violence? Yeah, I mean, it would be nice if we had those structures in place uh, and we are starting to get those structures in place where we can have that kind of, um, you know, crossing of information across different um, uh, organisations. 
And yes, that's part of it. But I think it, it was at a theoretical level. So some of the early kind of research coming out of psychology in the 1980s and 1990s that started to identify these links, and still to this day, actually, there is this same kind of rhetoric. It's that when you read these papers, what they're essentially saying is we should be concerned with violence to animals because it indicates a higher chance of violence to humans. And yes, it does. And yes, we should be concerned for that reason. But in that framing, where is the animal as a victim? It's, you know, that animal is completely lost. And so what we are seeing is a movement that says animals are red flags and therefore we need to um, identify violence to them so that we can get in there quicker to help humans. And I think, yes, we should. Well, we absolutely should. But we should also get in there quicker to help animals, right? They're not just a red flag. These animals um, are subject to emotional abuse, financial abuse, um, physical abuse in exactly the same way that their humans are. And so we need to get in there um, and address that for the sake of these animals too, not just for the sake of their humans. I mean, the two often go together, you know. So if you've got a human that's very connected to their animal and they won't leave violence because of that connection, which is really common, um, if you can offer that human sanctuary with that animal, then you're helping both of them. And I, I mean, great, let's do that. Let's absolutely do that. But let's not frame this in a way that reiterates the idea that humans are way more important and that their abuse is way more important than the animals. Because that kind of binary and hierarchical thinking is what gets us to the normalization of the violence in the first place. So we're kind of undoing the good that we're doing with this framing. Mm -hmm. And as you say, it has real world effects, doesn't it? Where you, you place more value on the violence towards humans and animals. And, and, and as you say, people are, are less likely to, to leave that home because they don't want to leave the animal. But it makes sense, doesn't it? If you're caring for both the, the human and the animal who are both experiencing violence, it makes sense if you care for them equally the real world outcomes are going to be more significant. Yeah, that's right. And that's all that it comes down to. It's not saying, you know, I'm not trying to say that the, the trauma um, or the abuse that the animals suffer is more important than the trauma or abuse that the humans suffer. I'm just saying that it's not the other way around. You know, that, that we need to focus on, you, you use the word equally, which is perfect. We need to focus on them both equally. Thinking a little bit more about the way we consider animals or how we marginalise animals. So New Zealand has a, a zealous appreciation for our native wildlife, um, especially our native birds, which to a certain extent is commendable. But this is translated to animals considered as pets being poisoned and killed by traps. And people even seem to get a get a thrill out of killing animals considered pests. You know, they post pictures of them on social media as if they're doing their duty to, to the country's native species. How do we reconcile this problem? On the one side, we've got this tremendous appreciation for a native wildlife, but certainly only certain species of, of native wildlife, native fish that are they're caught as whitebait, they don't get any sort of um, protection. So we've got certain species of native wildlife that New Zealand as a whole has this great appreciation for. But then we've got all these other animals that are considered pests, uh, introduced animals that we consider as other, and we commit horrible examples of cruelty to those animals. How do we how do we fix this problem? How do we reconcile this problem? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how we fix it. Um, I mean, it's huge, isn't it? This area is massive. I'll try and just stick to a couple of main points. Um, the first is that, yeah, there's a, there's a cultural um, angle to this. You know, 
we prefer some animals over others because of the various ideologies that we subscribe to that are pushed out by pest companies or by the government or, or whatever. So that's one area where we can get in and we can try and change those, the way that we think about these animals. But I don't think that that's going to occur without stepping back and thinking, well, you know, when we talk about killing possums because they're damaging to our native wildlife, I mean, irrespect, I'm just going to leave the errors of, of the, the discourse to one side. Um, you know, what's actually happening here? What is it that we're trying to preserve? Um, and I've looked at kind of pest control issues in both Australia and New Zealand. Um, and it seems to me what we're trying to preserve is this notion of a pristine uh, wildlife or a pristine nature or pristine environment that doesn't exist in the first place, never has existed. Um, and so I, I think that's built on the idea that nature is static, it stays the same, you know, which we know if you've got an ecological mindset, we know that's clearly not the case. Everything is shifting, everything is moving. Um, our systems, our ecological systems change all the time. And so the way that animals move in and out of pest categories also changes all the time. And I think that's that, uh, that discursive level, we've got to start there. Um, in getting the the message out that there is no pristine environment to save instead what there is is a mixed environment that we have done copious amounts of damage to that we often use other species as scapegoats for when we're having these discussions so that we don't have to look at how our practices are damaging the environment so like i said huge area and i think there's lots of different things we can pull out there but I think, you know, I think it, it comes back to the other stuff that we were talking about earlier. There's a Marxist analysis here of follow the money. You know, I mean, pest control is incredibly lucrative. And then there's kind of a, a cultural analysis, if you like, of, of how the dominant discourses, dominant ideologies of certain animals as pests are constructed and for what, what purpose. And then we can, that we, we need to start deconstructing um, and having tougher discussions actually about the damage that humans are doing to the environment. We do way more damage to natural wildlife every year than poor old possums do. We're the worst pests, if anything. Yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. I've read this book called Post-Capitalism. It's by a guy called Paul Mason. And just a couple of other comments that you've made. It reminded me of a, a passage in the book where essentially the book is analysis of capitalism currently and what uh, a post-capitalist economy and society could look like. And he talks about how patriarchy, this thousands of thousands of year old system of oppression that over the last hundred years or so we've begun to see dissolving, obviously there's a way to go. And he demonstrates it's almost ludicrous to consider that that can happen with patriarchy, but then consider that a 200-year-old economic system like capitalism is somehow indestructible. It will, it will just last forever. So thinking about that in the context of the exploitation of animals and um, the way we exploit animals today is far different to the way we've done centuries ago. So I guess I take some solace in the fact that whilst it seems like this immovable power structure, we could very well see it go the way that we've seen, that we're starting to see patriarchy go. Um, well, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's hope. Um, it depends on which day of the week you ask me, actually. Today I'll be hopeful. Um, I, I mean, nothing's immovable. Nothing. You know, our history is, is, is a history of the changing of ideas and the changing of structures. So nothing is immovable. 
I think that the notion that capitalism is immovable is actually um, is actually a, an ideological mechanism to maintain it. You know, so people become very apathetic, thinking that they can't change anything. That suits the system. So let's destroy that idea straight away. You know, we can change stuff. And I think we are starting to see those changes now. You know, I, I'd say the same with patriarchy. We're not there yet. We're nowhere near there, but we're better than we were. I think the same thing applies to animals um, and their liberation from, from human oppression. Um, I think it can change. And actually, you know, this is a perfect time to be having this conversation. I'll bring up the pandemic because it's, it's, it's exposing so many holes in the systems in our societies, isn't it? Whether it's around, you know, the neoliberal defunding of welfare and, and the health sector, um, or whether it's around the way that we have consistently ignored all of the um, warning signs about pandemics coming from animals to humans as a result of the way that we commodify and, and, and treat them. So I think we might actually be, I think we were heading towards a turning point where, you know, there's, there's more vegans than we've ever had before, more vegetarians, more people are concerned about these issues. I think we were heading there. I'm hoping that the pandemic, as terrible as it is, I'm hoping that we get something good out of it on the other side, which is that it forces these issues um, to be addressed quicker. And I'd just be interested to throw that back to you because, of course, you work on the front line with people and their attitudes to animals all the time. Do you think we're going to see a change on the back of this because of the pandemic? You've caught, much like yourself, you've caught me on a, a hopeful day. So um, I think today, I think it would be naive of us to not consider, when I say us, I mean our society. I think it would be naive of us to ignore um, what's happened with this pandemic. And I try not to think of um, people as being selfish, but the fact that this pandemic has such a threat to human life, I think it will hopefully start to make people think a little bit more about, you know, the role that the commodification of animals plays here. And I think that the tricky part will be, because this, the example of COVID-19, it most likely came from a wet market in, um, in Wuhan, China, where they bred and sold exotic animals, wildlife, in, in intensive farms. I do worry that people will look at that and go, oh, well, it had nothing to do with raising pigs or, or, or chickens in, in factory farms, even though there are definitely examples of zoonotic diseases that have emerged from, from pig farms. I think so long as we can remind people that this is all one and the same, it's not just a wet market in China where these deadly diseases come from. It comes from the intensification of our farming practices and the commodification of animals. I was watching this this presentation that Dr. Michael Greger did 10 years ago, and he almost accurately predicted a pandemic like COVID-19, but he just looked at the history of our species. And what he was saying was it wasn't until humans started domesticating animals and, uh, and raising them for food that zoonotic diseases really started occurring. So yeah, I think it would be foolish and naive of us as a globe to ignore the warning signs. I, my, my concern is that we will look for a quick answer. So, you know, we'll have a look at whether it's passed through bats or pangolin or whatever species of animal. And then once we've identified that, what are we going to do? Let's say that we just find out that it does come from bats and it solely came from bats. 
what what's the response i worry that our response will be well let's just eradicate them because that is our mindset so i do worry that people won't you know like you say won't make the links across species or or more broadly to how we treat other animals i also worry that in people's desire to to return to what was normal that they will not want to think about this anymore i was listening to the radio yesterday um, and they were talking about, you know, moving to level three, um, as we are about to next week. And the whole segment, which went on for about 10 minutes, was all about um, people phoning in saying how desperate they were to go to KSC. And, you know, and that wasn't a hopeful day. I didn't have a hopeful day yesterday because of this. I, I thought, you know what, I do think in some ways that because our Prime Minister has dealt with this largely so well, and we've been largely unaffected um, you know, to the degree that other countries have been affected, that we are clamoring to return to normal without thinking through what's actually happened here because it doesn't feel like it's affected too many of us. So I do think that's a concern. And I think we I think the challenge for us in the coming weeks will be to help people see those links between um, you know, the way we've responded to the virus. Um, the, where it comes from and, and how that's linked to animal oppression more broadly in our society. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that KSC example, like I've literally seen comments on social media, which is level three is level four, yeah. but with KFC. And, yeah. and that's a good point. That's an interesting point that you've raised it because we have come out extremely well of this, this pandemic, the way it, it could have been a disaster for us it appears that we've made the right calls and we've managed to you know significantly reduce the impact that this virus could have had on New Zealand and will that make us apathetic and I would certainly hope not but that that risk really is there one thing I have been seeing a lot of talk about in the media lately is a potential inquiry into China's handling of the outbreak there's allegations there that they potentially covered up what was going on obviously there's you know issues there with their their wet markets and people worldwide are calling for a close of their wet markets part of me really hopes that if anything comes of this inquiry that they look at the commodification of animals more broadly and i mean we're talking about geopolitics here so there's obviously going to be massive agendas going on here it's being pushed by the united states because they've got a narrative that they want to be superior over china but yeah basically back to my original point is i do i hope that any kind of inquiry would have a broader analysis of our relationship with animals and how they play a role mm, it would be nice and also recognizing that wet markets aren't specific to china you know i mean like you say that fits into all kinds of um, global narratives and xenophobia and racism but you know there are wet markets elsewhere we need to look at those markets and the kind of risk that they hold for humans never mind even starting talking about the animals um but then we also need to consider you know like pig farms Uh, i was reading some statistics the other day i think it's about 80 percent of antibiotics that are sold in the usa are for animal farming you know, we, we need to start having a consideration about more broadly about the kind of damage that this could potentially do and the kind of doors that this opens up for other forms, um, other pandemics in the future. And as you say, there have already, already been several of them in the past. So I think our challenge as, as animal advocates is to keep making these connections for people and then somehow working out how we get that information across in a way that gets people thinking about 
well, why, you know, about going to KFC um, or, or about the idea of consumption of other animals in the kind of mass, mass ways that we do. I mean, I'd say in any way, but let's start within the mass ways that we do. So I think there are challenges ahead. You know, I, I, I do think that, there, um, as you said, you know, capitalism is being challenged. We're potentially on the doorstep of the end of capitalism. Um, maybe we need to get to the doorstep of the end of neoliberalism, which I always think of as capitalism on steroids anyway. Um, and so maybe there is, there is hope as we start to tear down patriarchy, as we start to tear down capitalism, maybe there's hope that we can also tear down the way that animal oppression is embroiled in those systems. You have been listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation, and produced by myself, Will Appleby. Make sure you subscribe to stay across Animal Matters on whatever your favourite platform is. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating, as it helps other listeners to find the show. If you want to support the show, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Until next time, kakite anō.